Psalm number 2. Psalm number 2. The second psalm. And we're going to be looking at this psalm this evening under the title, Christ's Kingdom. Christ's Kingdom in Psalm number 2. And really the purpose um, with going through this series, see, with the psalms, they're wonderful, they're rich, they speak of our emotions, our pain, our anguish at times, our depression, our, our highs, our lows, our deep valleys. And in going through this series, I really want to focus on why we sing them. Christ is in them. Christ is explained gloriously, wonderfully. I remember once I heard a man, a man I have much respect for, and he said that he felt that, um, that man-made hymns, this is my own expression, Explain Christ and the Trinity better. I think we need to be careful when we say things like this. I know what people mean. I know what people mean by this. But here is the God-breathed word. And what I, and together as God's people, I hope we can see that we get Christ better in here. Than we ever could. In the words of men. We love poetry. There's nothing wrong with poetry. Uh, The Puritans used to write much poetry. And prayers and everything. That is wonderful. In private devotion. That's wonderful. But when we sing the Psalms. Hopefully we can sing with understanding. That we can see. Ah here is Christ. It speaks of Christ. Ah here it speaks of the Father. And the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here is the very word of God breathed out. Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So let us read now from Psalm 2. Psalm number 2. Let us hear God's holy and his infallible word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying... Let us break their bands in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O king. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and his infallible word. In our world today, people 
respect power. Now, they may not respect true authority, but they respect power, military might. You could say the person with the biggest stick in the yard. No one wants to mess with the biggest military power in the world. People are too afraid to do anything that would bring trouble. But what happens in the world when there are moral and structural weaknesses, and we can see this happening today actually, in the Western world, wouldn't there be a challenge when the former leaders of the the world will become morally more corrupt and things like this? People in the past, for example, used to look to Britain for leadership. Um, A mighty empire, her navy and her might at times, and now it's the United States. We see a world changing. We see, you know, you turn on the news, you see Russia and China, and things are changing. An ever-changing world, a global world. This is where the enemies see weaknesses. But let us think about God. What happens when sinners underestimate the power of God, the greatness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God, or perhaps when they despise these things? And this is what the enemies do in Psalm number 2. They underestimate God, they underestimate Christ's kingdom, for this is what's been spoken about here in Psalm number 2, Christ's kingdom. They aim for the impossible, and what they're aiming for is doom and destruction. There's no other way it can end. So I hope this evening we can see the true king of kings, the son of David. The one who is that Messiah, the anointed one spoken of, the Lord, the Christ. And as we look at this as well, I wanted to ask ourselves, there's a lot of raging and tumultuous trouble that goes on. And as we think about this world, we live in a world, don't we, that seems to ponder from crisis to crisis to crisis. There's no calm anywhere. There's unease. There's anger. There's rage and there's hostility. This is spoken about in our song. When we believe something is wrong, something is right, there's some injustice in the world. It makes us feel uneasy. The enemies of the Lord show anger toward the Lord because they feel that what he does is wrong. But what about us? Are we calm? There's a sense in which, dear friends, we as Christians should be the calmest people, shouldn't we? Because we know how the end from the beginning. We know what the Lord has shown us in his holy word. We know that the Lord provides for his people. And as there are enemies of God, we would be promised that that would happen. Enemies of the kingdom, enemies of his reign. We're not shocked by this. When trouble comes, we're not shocked by it. We, I don't want to sound um, pessimistic, but we, we expect it. If you're going to follow Christ in this world, you're going to have problems. How do the enemies of God react? And this is what we're going to look at here. In our first point, our first point, Christ's opposition. Christ's Opposition. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? A vain thing. 
What are they thinking up? What are they plotting? Something worthwhile? Something clever? Something that maybe God hasn't thought up of? No, not at all. Something, in fact, worthless. Something empty. Something that serves no purpose, for it changes nothing. No matter how much these opponents of Christ rage, they cannot remove him from his throne. They cannot even hope to remove him from his throne. He will reign forever and ever and be the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the greater David that's spoken about in the Psalms. The greater David. The nations, or the heathen here, rage against the Lord. They are restless. They find no calm. They find no peace because they are at war with God. The fact that God is on his throne makes them so anxious and angry and and there's venom that seems to come forth here. There's no peace for them. Like what happens in our own conscience? If we believe something is wrong, something is wrong. Do you ever feel that, that feeling in the pit of your stomach? Something is wrong. Maybe it robs you of sleep. Maybe it robs you of peace somehow. But they're robbed of peace, these people spoken about here. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They rage, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Or why do the nations have this tumultuous rage? The Hebrew there has this idea of uproar, confused noise. And we need to point out that this is not converted people. Um, Why does it say the nations? Literally, it is the nations. Because there was only one nation on the earth, Israel, that followed God. And when it ever talks about the nations, it's talking about all the other nations who followed other gods. This is why sometimes in some translations that word can be nations, it can be Gentiles. You know, they would understand it. Well, here are the people of God and the, the Gentiles. The, these were the Greek-speaking world as it was later. The heathen, some will translate it as well. Why the heathen? Because they're outside of what's the visible church. They're unbelievers. They are war with Christ A war that goes back thousands of years. Doomed to failure. Vain. Useless. It is describing those lost outside of Christ. Now, as we say that they are lost outside of Christ, let us not think, well, we can't be influenced by such behavior. As believers, we can. There are times when we, myself included, will all let ourselves down. And when we look back and go, I'm acting a little bit like the world here. And we can all do it. We can all follow in under the influence. But you know what the Spirit of God does? Wonderfully. He gives us correction. Loving correction. And brings us back to Him. But this is not the case here with the nations. Nations rage. They plot a vain thing. And, and they plot useless things. And they depart from the Lord. They do what they want. Uh, verse 3 it says this. This is their desire. Let us break their bonds and pieces and cast away their cords from us. They don't want the control. They, they want um, to be away from the Lord. They want their own sin. Sin is against Christ. Now, in verse 2, that we saw in our Psalters, it says the Messiah. And here it says his anointed. Oh, is there a problem with the translation? Well, no. Actually, you could even translate it his Christ. Christ kind of comes from the Greek word, Christos, which means anointed one. 
So you could, you could easily say Christ against the Lord and against his Christ. Actually, when this is quoted in the New Testament, it does say against the Lord and against his Christ. To fight against the Lord is to fight against Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Those outside of Christ do not see the need for Christ. Now, as we think about this in terms of applying, and the word of God needs to be applied to our lives. It's so easy just to have it in our minds, and it doesn't affect our lives. How do we view dear, and we were to love our neighbors, Roman Catholic, liberal, atheist, Muslim, whatever. But we also have to realize their opposition to Christ. It breaks our hearts. We don't get kind of like holier-than-thou attitude. Um, you know, that can be a danger. We're not any better than them, those outside of Christ, in ourselves. But we have something that they don't have, and we want them to have that too, so that they're no longer the opposition to Christ. They are now brought under his care and his protection. So, Christ's opposition. Christ's uh, omnipotence. Omnipotence. And what does that mean? All-powerful. Christ is all-powerful. You get omni, all, and potence, powerful. He is the infinite God who fills all things. So what does the opposition to Christ want? They want to break away the bands asunder. Verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. They want, what do they want? Freedom from control. I want, to, I want to live my own life. You know, you'll see a lot of you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who go to college. and I want to live my own life. I don't want that restraint. You know, they want their freedom. Now, a true freedom is good. True freedom is good. It's a wonderful thing. There's many people who have lived under horrible governments around the world and flee from them and come to the West for a better life. But there's also spiritual tyranny as well. Oppressive, horrible, unyielding. But that is the world, the flesh, and the devil. All those who are outside of Christ are under this reign. But can they break away? Can these people who desire to break their ba- the bonds asunder, can they break away? Can they possibly break, break away from Christ? Not at all. They think to serve Christ, to do what it says in the Bible, that's horrible. Oh, how can you possibly want to go to church and read the Bible? That's what people think. Because their hearts need to be changed. I thought that way once before the Lord changed me. Oh, this is horrible and oppressive. Oh, this is just filled with killjoy commandments. That's what, we th- that's what an unbeliever thinks. And at times, maybe, when we drift from the Lord, we can start thinking like that ourselves. But the commandments are wonderful. They bring freedom because the true freedom is in Christ. Christ brings true freedom. You see, sin brings slavery. But true freedom comes in Christ. Not away from his control. Actually, more under his control. It seems like the exact opposite for some people would think that. But the more we're under Christ's control, the more we're freed from the dominion and the power of sin. Now, we're not completely rid of it until we're in, in glory, in heaven. 
But just think of this, friends. The more we're like Christ in this world, the more we're under his influence, the more and more we experience freedom. True, wonderful freedom. Free from the bands and the cords of sin. It says this in Romans 6, 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 6, 18. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Galatians 5, 1. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You see, don't go back to this. Sin is bondage. Sin is returning to Egypt. But continue on in your journey. Go towards the wilderness. The land of Canaan awaits. And the land of Canaan has freedom. The land of Canaan has the enemies driven out. And has joy. It has wonderful fruit. It has all the things you need. It has God. A wonderful thing. Why would we want to be free from the Lord? Why would we want to run from him back to, to, the, to the oppression of Egypt? Why do these nations, these heathen rage, they imagine a vain thing. It is because their hearts has not been changed and they don't see how wonderful it is to serve under his all-seeing, all-reigning, all-powerful eye. He is the one with all the control and as the Unbelievers, they rage against God. They will go from crisis to crisis. Of course they do. Because they, they have no peace. You see the different movements, you know, transgender, one minute. What will it be tomorrow? Who knows? But there's no peace. They're tormented. They know that there's something more, but they're seeking the truth in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. And they think, ah, but if I will just do this one thing, ah, then I'll have peace. And it's so, so heartbreaking and sad to see young people trapped in this lie. It's heartbreaking, it really is. But we've got to offer the real thing that they need. The Lord has planted eternity in our hearts. They need this. We need this. It says in Romans 8.31. What shall we then say to these things. If God be for us. Who can be against us? Now. What's God's response to this opposition? Should we be worried? Should we be losing sleep? I know we're not perfect and we do. Lose sleep over various things. But. Look at the Lord's response in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Shall laugh. Imagine, I don't know, the shortest person you've ever seen in your life is going, come on, I'll start a fight with you. You're just, you're almost laughing. Come on, you're not going to do it. Or, you know, you see a small dog runs up to you and starts trying to do something to you. You don't take it seriously, do you? the Lord laughs because, is he worried? Is the Lord worried? Is the Lord worried about all the opposition that there is in the world to him? Not at all. He is all powerful. And we've got to realize we are mere tiny creatures. Every single creature is tiny, but he fills all things. Everything is controlled and maintained by him. 
I was even thinking, you know, imagine an ant trying to pick a fight with an elephant. Or a mouse trying to fight with a lion. I don't think that the lion's going to be too worried. He's going to think, well, this is an easy lunch. God is the one who cannot be touched. We've got to realize who God is. In our confession of faith, it says one thing about God. It's well, a number of things about God, but one thing it says, he is without passions. What that means is God cannot suffer. Do you know that? God cannot suffer. Now, Christ suffered as a man, but in his divine nature, he's untouchable. He laughs. Oh, we are meek creatures, may try to harm God, but he's the omnipotent one. He's the all-powerful one. Number three now, we're going to look at Christ's origin. Christ's origin. Now, when I say origin, I don't mean that Christ had a beginning in time. That would be a heresy. But Christ does have an eternal origin that is spoken about in this psalm. Christ is what the men of old would have called eternally generated of the Father. He is timeless, changeless in his origin. This is another way of saying he is equal with the Father. He is equal with the Father. Verse 7 tells us of this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Look at who is saying this. The Lord. And if you see in your Bibles, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. Jehovah. He says, my son, I have begotten you. This is the Christ. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And as the the enemies gather, but only to be rebuked by the Lord's righteous anger. The world has their king. The world has another king besides this king here. The Lord has set his king. He says in verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. The origin of Christ is heaven. And the origin of the enemies of God is beneath. It is hell below. Holiness rebukes rebellion. And if you think about this, your holy living, dear friend, your living for Christ, your... The things you will say no to in the world. The things you suffer for in your place of work. That little bit you have gotten. That influence you've used for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. Rebukes rebellion. Remember that. Remember that. Even just to say no to sin. It is a rebuke itself to rebellion. The Lord goes forward with his kingdom. The kingdom goes forward. It advances. It defeats. It crushes. It dashes its enemies to pieces. And this is the only begotten son of God who does this. It says, ask of me and I will give you, verse 8, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them 
to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now that, that verse, uh, verse 7, it speaks of uh, his begotten relationship. God the Father, God the Son. Uh, the Son is begotten of the Father. And in the New Testament, it quotes this verse. It says this in, in Acts 13.33. God has fulfilled this for his children, for their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And at the resurrection, what has happened? The Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one, the Messiah, is vindicated to be exactly who he said he was. The sinless one, the, the fulfiller of all righteousness, the one who would bring resurrection to all that were in him. And then it points towards and declares something in Psalm 2. Today, and this is of the resurrection, Declaring this eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. I have begotten you. This is a relationship without beginning, without end. This is, this, the only differences between God the Father and God the Son is this. God the Father is not begotten of any. And the Son is begotten of the Father. We may not get our heads around this. There is nothing in the world we can liken this to. Even between a, father and a human father and a human son. They don't line up either but this is an eternal relationship one that does not change showing that he is God the son just as much as God the father is God without end God of God light from light true light from true light true God from true God language that would be found in the Nicene Creed In verse 9 it says this, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them. You see, this is why it makes sense that the Lord says unto his Christ, You shall dash them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel because the Son is God. The Messiah is God. The Christ is God. And he will also judge. Our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire, it says in Hebrews 12, 29. Do you see what happens to the enemy, dear friends? We need encouragement, don't we, in this generation? We need much encouragement as Christians. The the general direction of the church. But look at the general direction of the kingdom. Is it retreating? No, it's not retreating at all. It's going forward. It's victorious. Going forth, putting sin under the feet of Christ. And how, how are we to fight this enemy? How are we to fight this war? If you go to any battlefield and they say, ah, we don't have any weapons, you probably get a little bit nervous. There is a war for us to fight. We have a sword. We have shields. We have all sorts of things for this battle. And what kind of fight? How do we fight it? It says in Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's a spiritual fight. Now, I think sometimes in the political area, sometimes Christians, we can forget that. It's a spiritual fight. It doesn't mean that there's nothing to say to the world in terms of its responsibility to the state. It does. 
But we must remember that our greatest weapons, and not even the ballot box, I'm not saying there's anything terrible about that, but it's spiritual weapons. And what's the sword of the Lord? The word of God. Weapons of a heavenly origin. The gospel itself is a weapon. This is why we preach Christ. Christ, when he's preached, is shown to be openly victorious. See, friends, preaching should declare Christ victorious. You should never apologize for the contents of the word of God. It must declare it boldly and confidently. Now, we do pray that those who are our enemy's side, we want them to come over here, don't we? We desperately want those neighbors who are opponents currently of Christ, we want them to come over to our side and have peace. We want the losing side of this battle to come over to the winning side through faith in Jesus Christ. And that the resurrected Christ would be victorious and shown to be victorious in their lives. Embracing this only begotten son of God. Whose origin is of heaven and glory that awaits. And our final point here this evening is Christ's order. So Christ's opposition, Christ's omnipotence. Christ's origin. Finally, his order. His order. We are not to fear. Now, as I say that, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? I just don't fear. You know, when I hear that, I almost, even when I say it, I almost cringe some way inside myself because we all fear. We struggle. We, we, we have moments of anxiety. We tremble. And maybe a better way to say we are not to fear. I know Christ said many times, do not fear. But it's what do we fear, isn't it? We all fear something. Uh, We must fear something. We can fear God. We can fear the the pins of men. We can fear our own mortality and death. We can fear getting sick. We can fear, fear all sorts of things. Look what it says in verses 10 and 11. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Look at this, it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They almost don't seem to sound that they go together, but they do. They do. The person who fears God The person who fears God above all else is the person who fears the opinions of the world world, and all the other things that are out there the least. The the fear of God drives out all other fears. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples over and over again, do not be afraid. But he's really saying fear God. For the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Proverbs 1 verse 7. And why is it the beginning of wisdom? Because you realize who you're coming before. When we come before God, we come with sober minds. This is like the third commandment. Uh, and we don't come in a, in a kind of a flippant way before God. We're coming before the infinite and holy God. 
It's not just about vocabulary. We come trembling before him because we see and know of his greatness and there's something different. We're not just treating him like he's our buddy. And we're just, you know, talking, having a chat down at the shop or something like that. This is the infinite and the holy God. The kings of the earth often believed back then when when this psalm was being written that they were to be worshipped as gods. If you've read old history, you'll see that these these kings, the Roman Empire, the emperors, they saw themselves and they wanted to be worshipped as gods. And you can even see it today. There's like cult of personalities. You'll find it in places like North Korea and a little bit in China and other places. And you, you see why. They want to dominate. They want absolute rule. It's one of the reasons the communists will force out religion. Because they don't want their own idolatry of themselves to be in competition with anything else. They want the state. And the state alone to be what gets served. Now, the heathen kings of old were very similar. And they would pride themselves. They would, they would try to show themselves that they feared nothing. They were these powerful, mean warriors he never messed with. Ruling by fear. If you read in, in the Bible about the Assyrians, they were vicious. These things that, you know, that would make you really wince when you read about what the Assyrians did to their enemies. They ruled by fear, terror. It was one of the reasons why I think Jonah had such a trouble going up to Nineveh in the first place, the capital of that empire. Probably, you know, maybe people he knew were tortured and treated horribly by these Assyrians. But the Assyrians, and like all other else, should fear God, the true king and his Christ, who they are to serve Dear friends here this evening, do you see the power of the risen Christ? Because if you see the power of the risen Christ, think about it. He's in control of everything. Do you ever, um, look, this is a fear we all have. You know when you're giving the gospel to somebody and they're on your doorstep and you have an opportunity. You go, do I do it now? Oh, opportunity lost. Uh, And then we're worried about people going to say about us. We're worried if they're going to stop talking to us. And these are worries and fears we all have in our hearts. But friends, just think about this. God's in control of even their hearts. Not an amazing thing to think about. He's in control. And if they get saved, it's ultimately down to him. It says here in Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, that's authority, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Not some, all. The Christ has all the power in heaven and on earth. The kings of the earth want people to tremble before them. But they themselves, if they are wise, will tremble before God. They need to repent. Now therefore, verse 10, be wise, O kings. You see... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Be wise. And by being wise here this evening, you'll fear God. You'll come trembling before the Lord. Rejoicing with trembling. But it doesn't seem to go together. But as we see the greatness of God, as we see his infinite power, think of Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who fills heaven 
and earth. Now, godly fear, what will this do? It will bring us from allegiance to sin and service of sin to an allegiance to the Christ, the anointed one. Putting trust in Christ and nothing will make you escape this doom without Christ. In verse 12 it says this, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You see, wisdom is turning to Christ. Wisdom is kiss the Son, and kiss the Son is almost worship the Son. Worship the Son. Show affection toward the Son. For only Christ can save. Now there's something very interesting here about verse 12. Kiss the Son. Now, as you may well know, that the Psalms were all written in Hebrew. But there's actually an Aramaic word here in the word son. It's the word bar. Bar. And it's left a lot of people scratching their heads. Why is this Aramaic word right in the middle of a psalm? He's speaking to the nations. Be wise, O kings, all the heathen nations. Now, what's interesting about Aramaic is it was the international language. Kiss the sun. In a language they all understand. Your neighbors need the sun. Everyone needs the sun. It's not just those in the church. I think we can, it, it, it's very easy, isn't it? Like perhaps in a, in a community such as this, maybe we only witness to Protestants or people connected with Protestants and things like this. We, mean, we really need to reach out to everybody. Roman Catholics, even the atheists, who may even throw our tracks in the bin right in front of us, but you never know in six months' time, they may ring up the phone and say, I got gloriously saved. Just because they may mock at you, it doesn't mean they won't get saved later. And they'll be glorious when it happens. I've often heard of people, it's years later, they may give out tracks 10 years ago, and they say, oh, how did you find out about the church? Track campaign they did 10 years ago. And I think in some ways they're kind of going, why didn't we keep going with it? That's what they kept thinking. But because they didn't see the fruit immediately. We, we, keep, we need to keep encouraging each other. It's hard, brother. I'm not saying any of this is easy. But this is why we have to be in the word of God. Constantly being encouraged that the Lord is in control and we kiss the sun and realizing that all the nations, everybody needs to hear Christ's order. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. The, the wrath of God is taken away and you, my dear friend, if you kiss the sun, you will not perish. If you kiss the sun, his, his wrath is dealt with in and through Christ. And blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Blessed. Blessed. Eternally blessed. And are we wise this evening? Have we kissed the sun? Friends, think about the what, What's the opposite? I know sometimes we think of, well, so-and-so is not going to church anymore. The alternative to Christ is rebellion. The alternative to heaven is hell. These consequences have such a massive chasm between them. They are so monumentally huge. I cannot possibly even express the difference. 
This is why we can never do too much for the kingdom, can we? For this kingdom. But what's wonderful about this kingdom is it's going to be victorious. It'll be victorious. All enemies will be placed under his feet. Even death itself. And as we sing the remainder of this psalm, if we serve him in this kingdom, let us sing to him. Let us sing of his victory. Let us sing to Christ about Christ, with the aid of Christ, to the glory of Christ. And he will receive this great inheritance. All the nations, all who fight against him, will be brought under his heel. May we do so all to the glory of God. Amen.